We're hearing music from an album by the Generations Quartet, featuring NEA jazz master Dave Liebman. This is the opening track, Maiden Voyage, by Herbie Hancock. WVIA producer Chris Hendrickson was struck by the sound of this CD and the notion that different generations of jazz musicians were coming together with their individual voices and finding a way to create something new rooted in their distinctive backgrounds, as Hendrickson will tell us. And he was able to draw on this recording for the soundtrack of the original WVIA documentary titled A Call to Care that premieres tonight. What adds an extra dimension is that this album and the latest from blues musician Clarence Spady seem to echo certain concerns explored in A Call to Care. Clarence Spady's tunes have lyrics, so the thematic reverberations can be felt and understood. In the case of Generations, it would be an interesting footnote to realize that Herbie Hancock, whose music we're hearing here, and John Coltrane on a later track are two of the many jazz players who were at some point in their lives caught up in a circle of drug abuse. Unhappily, many of the individuals featured in this documentary have been derailed by drug use or trafficking. But because of the CARE program at the center of this story, there's the possibility for a maiden voyage of sorts toward a new or renewed life for those willing to persevere. Chris Hendrickson is an award-winning producer-director here at WVIA Public Media, and he has created an exceptional body of work in his more than two decades at the station. We had a chance to sit down with Chris before tonight's premiere to talk about and the art and craft of creating a documentary film like A Call to Care. You do many things here at WVIA, but one of the things that you and I have worked on, in fact, that far back, what was the first thing that you explored? Do you remember in terms of documentaries here? It probably was the work that you and I did together back in the early 2000s uh, when we uh, did a, a documentary on the life and music of Mozart. And we were able to travel to Austria and the Czech Republic and go to the cities where where Mozart composed the works that he is famous for. And uh, this being, I believe it was right on the cusp of 9-11 and 2001, I think it was December of 2001, that we were going out onto a plane and off into Europe and, and the controversy that all that entailed. So it was very a very strange time. I, I don't even think about it anymore. But at the time, it was like, you, you're really doing that? You're really going to go? But we did, and, and the, the experience was wonderful, and it was terrific, and the people couldn't have been more generous and more uh, giving to all of us. And of course, being in Austria and being in, in the Czech Republic uh, was beautiful then. In fact, it, it was only a couple of years later that some very devastating floods hit Prague, and, and a lot of what we saw was no longer there. So it's amazing how the opportunity to go and find these things and, and check them out uh, when you can, it can't be uh, overstated because you just never know. You never know. But it, it brings up something that was that I was thinking of when I was just thinking about what we were going to be talking about and that how important, even though Mozart was a musician and his, mu his music was what the whole show was about, how important the visuals of that documentary were. 
We were going somewhere that a lot of people hadn't gotten a chance to see, seeing cities and seeing places and, and, and buildings and, and just areas that people heard about, uh, maybe saw pictures of, but weren't able to experience for themselves. And we were able to show that for everyone and, and, and get them a chance to see something they don't always see. Uh, this was a very different thing. I just completed uh, the, the project, which is a, a documentary called A Call to Care. And it's very much uh, on a different level. In fact, it's almost the polar opposite of that. I've spent so much time concentrating on visuals, uh, but being in, in television as I, I am, uh, visuals are, are king. Visuals are what you do. You, you, you shoot the picture and you shoot the image and you get the image to support what's being said. And this was a very different experience. There was comparatively very little imagery in this. It's a documentary that follows uh, the lives of people who are in a program called the Court Assisted Reentry Program, which is a federal program here in Pennsylvania that assists people who are getting out of federal prison after a, a long prison sentence sometimes and uh, helping them readjust or get reacclimated to life on the outside. And it's the, the court staff and the individuals and the private businesses and industries around here locally who are coming together as a group to help these people readjust and give them the opportunities to, uh, to, to build their life back together because a lot of things just go out the window when you go to jail and you come back out. A lot of things you, uh, you worked for, uh, sometimes your whole life are gone and now you've got to build it back up. Never mind the idea that there is a stigma attached to being a, uh, a convicted felon and now there are doors that are not open to you anymore. And they, these people come together in a very powerful way to make sure those doors can either remain open or become open again so that these people can reestablish themselves into society for the benefit of everyone. Uh, so it, it's a very worthwhile program. But the reason I'm, I'm coming back to that is that these people come from very different uh, lifestyles, very different points of view, uh, very different people, uh, very diverse culturally, racially, uh, economically. Everyone seems to come from a very different place, and yet they're talking about the same thing in their own words. And I thought that was very important. The more I listened to everyone, the court staff, the judges, the prosecutors, the lawyers, who are very good at, at speaking about what this job entails and what this, uh, this program needs, and then the people who had gone through the program who maybe do not have a lot of education or have come from very challenging backgrounds, they all spoke very, in very different ways. Uh, and the more I listened to that, the more I knew that that's what this show was going to be about. It was going to be about hearing them in their own words and not about narration and not about putting a lot of uh, descriptive, textual, full screen stuff explaining what's going on. It's all about them. It's about their impressions and, and, and their talking about their lives in their own way. And every, every voice is different. Every manner of speaking is different, and I wanted to make sure that that's what we heard, and that's what the show ended up becoming. And Chris, what about the notion of getting and gaining the trust of people who aren't used to speaking before a microphone? What about people who are revealing things about themselves that they might not be too comfortable about? Well, it was a surprise. I mean, don't get me wrong, there were people who were not willing to go in a lot of places. I, we asked a lot of people to speak. 
Some said, no, thank you. The ones who did were very forthcoming and very open about who they were, what they'd done in the past, what they have now done to correct those things and to pay for the crimes that they've committed and the situation that they're in now. That can't be overstated either. I think that's something that we got to, well, I expected a lot of uh, defensiveness, but there wasn't. The people who were there were very interested in telling these stories and wanted us to know what it takes to build your life back. And it's that, that's what makes this program work because they are the, the spokespeople, the, spoke, the representatives of this program. No matter what a judge or a lawyer or uh, a businessman or a CEO or a bank president will say, it's these people. It's these people who are now finding life challenging because they can't find a, a well-paying job or they, they find it hard to get medical insurance or they're finding it hard to get the education they need to build up themselves up into a different job. Uh, they're the people that tell the story in ways that make it real for everybody. Were you recording these interviews, at least some of them, while COVID was underway or had the interviews been mostly accomplished before the outbreak? Well, COVID was a problem. Uh, this has been gestating for a very long time, uh, for several years. We did a, a, a lot of work around 2019, going into 2020. I had uh, spearheaded the last really big section of interview material in March of 2020. No kidding. So things sort of came to an end there for a while. And there were a couple of people who we spoke to through Zoom because we wanted to keep things rolling to a degree. But a lot of it was just put on hold. And then when things started to open up a little bit, then people were more willing to uh, allow us to visit them and allow us to find them and uh, and talk to them in person. And that's kind of what we wait. And I'm glad we were able to wait for it. I mean, it's, it was a long time coming, but I'm glad we were able to wait for it because that's that's what makes this really work when you can get one-on-one -on -one with a person and see how they react and, and judge what they're feeling when you're talking to them. What about abstract notions like courage and stick-to-itiveness, persistence? Did they talk in those terms about what it's taking for them to keep going and try to make it? They did. They, they talked a lot about that, and they talked more so about the importance of supporting each other through it. There was always someone willing to say, just just work a little bit, just a little bit longer, just a little bit more. You'll get through this. Trust me. I was, I was here, and I got through it. You're going to get through it, too. And that's what the program's all about. It's everybody coming together, knowing the problems that are ahead of some of the younger folks, and knowing that it's possible to overcome them, as long as you Forget about the notion that you're all doing it all by yourself. You're not. You're doing it as a group and with people who are, whose primary goal now is to help you. There was a, a prosecutor who mentioned that she's a, a federal prosecutor whose job it is to defend the people of the United States. You look at an indictment, it says the United States of America versus somebody. And that person is right there in the courtroom. That's the somebody. And now they've paid their debt. They're out and they've come into the CARE Court program, 
and this prosecutor is now part of the program, and it's a little bit intimidating seeing the person who sent you to jail, essentially, uh, now claiming that they're helping you. But in fact, she says, it's my job. It's my job is to defend the people of the United States, the, the United States of America versus. And now you are part of the United States. And anybody who's going to say you can't have that job because you're a convicted felon, anyone who says you can't get health care because of that, I'm here to say this is a person of the United States of America. This is someone who's part of, we're all part of the same community now. And this person deserves to be helped in the same way that all the other people are being helped when I'm prosecuting someone in federal court. And it, it, it moves you a little bit because this is a, it's a trust issue that it's hard for people coming out of prison to overcome. They're not going to assume anybody is going to have their best interest at heart ever, but they do. And that's what care court is for, is to convince people that there is somebody on your side. And, and they do a terrific job of pulling people together and finding resources. And if you think there's no way to get an inroad or get inside or get your foot in the door, there is a way because they know somebody. Everybody knows somebody who's going to help you out as long as you are willing to put in the work that's required of you. And a lot of people do. Some of them don't. Some of them can't make the change to adjust to a new lifestyle. Some have a, a criminal element in their past that they can't seem to shake. And they've come to the program and they've washed out of the program. And some have even gotten out, gone back to prison, and come back in a successful way. So there's always a second or third chance. That's what it's for. Is this a program that is a pilot program? Is it funded in a way that will be temporary pending the outcome, the number of successful cases where people are able to reenter society? What kind of a structure is it in terms of its longevity? This has been going on in the Middle District of Pennsylvania, the federal court system, since 2009. And it's, it, it exists in many different forms in different judicial structures around the country. A lot of places around the country have these kind of reentry courts uh, up and running. Uh, there's a lot of organizations locally, too, who are seeing it as a, uh, an inspiration and as a, a template. There's a lot of groups on the, uh, on the state level. The state courts are a whole different, a whole different level of things. And, uh, and they have programs of their own that they are beginning to put together that they're trying to start. And people in the care court program are acting as liaisons and as advisors to help them get these programs up and running. Because if you look at all the people coming out of federal prison in a year, the amount of people coming out of state prison and county prison, it's by magnitudes larger than that. So the problem exists everywhere. So everyone's trying to figure out a way to kind of put these resources together in one place so that everybody can... Uh, become part of, a, of, of society, become a contributing member of society, which of course is far less costly to the taxpayer, far better for the community, uh, and just better for everyone as human beings. Chris, did you talk with me about some creative people who are taking an interest in this project? Well, a funny thing, and I, I come back to the idea that there was comparatively fewer visual elements in this than I've worked with in the past. And I, de I depended more on music and voice to kind of convey the message, uh, and not only convey the message, but also to dictate mood, change pace, 
all the things, all the things that documentary filmmakers love to talk about, changing styles and, and pace and, and, and mood and things like that. Uh, it was all sound. It was almost like a, uh, a podcast for television, uh, like a conversation of people from many different walks of life coming together talking about this one thing. Uh, so music was a big deal, and we were able to work with some regional musicians, which I didn't see coming, but when it came together, it, it made it something that I didn't quite expect. We worked with a, well, we used the music of a, a, a regional blues musician named Clarence Spady, who is, again, no stranger to uh, the struggles of, of people's drug addiction, which is a, a very significant thread throughout this whole piece. His music was able to convey moods and messages. Again, my, I always say that a, a good piece of music will say more than a thousand words will. Always, always. Every time you think you've got this thing nailed down, a good piece of music will always say it better. And so we have a couple of pieces from Clarence who are there, Surrender being one of them, uh, a piece called Addiction Game, which says everything you need to know. We also were able to use some of the music from uh, a jazz musician, Dave Liebman, who has a, a group called the Generations Quartet, which is David, along with some musicians who are considerably younger than he. Uh, and it, it called to attention to me the idea that some of these people coming out of federal prison uh, were very young, who spent 18 months in prison and, and were coming out and had no idea what to do next. And then there were people who had spent decades in prison and had come back, older gentlemen, uh, older people, who were in basically the same situation. Now they are together, this multi-generational problem, and, and dealing with it in their own way, but all in the, in, in the same playing field. And that's what I thought of when I heard the Generation Quartet. I thought, well, you know, this certainly makes a whole lot of sense. And, and we were able to use a, uh, some music from the Generation's Quartet and Dave Liebman. There's also a, a, a classical guitarist. His name is Eric Falco, who's a, a young guy, very young guy, but is uh, a beautiful classical guitarist. Again, the purity of that uh, was, a, was a wonderful counterpoint to the kind of dark and gritty and gloomy and kind of foreboding idea of, of this whole undercurrent of drug addiction and, and, and federal prison and things like that. And the most noticeable, probably, would be the, the music of Whitney Houston, of all people, uh, which is not something you often hear in a PBS television special. But one of the people we spoke with, uh, an ex-con who was from the Harrisburg area, his name is John Watson, and he served a large stint in federal prison, would have been much larger had he not gotten into the law library in the prison, figured out a way to mount a defense for himself to get his sentence reduced, which he did in a rather significant way, argued his case in front of the Court of Appeals in Harrisburg, got himself out of prison. His sentence would have been, I don't know, 150 months, I think, and it, it was he got it reduced to 40 months. He would have been in jail until 2027. And instead, he got himself out of prison in about, I think it was 2015. He was able to create businesses that set himself up as a, a legal advocate for people coming out of prison. He is a, a contractor, so he's helping to build low-income housing for people, becoming a major player in his community and helping things, helping people get a leg up, people who need help. And uh, as it turns out, he is a cousin of Pat Houston, who is the 
uh, executor of the estate of Whitney Houston. Again, an organization not unfamiliar with the work of drug addiction treatment and things like that, who was very impressed with the work that John Watson does and uh, offered the use of the Whitney Houston song, Greatest Love of All, which sounds a bit on the nose, I, I grant you. But the piece works with John Watson's story so well that, you know what, I said, let's, let's do this. And so there's, there, there's all kinds of musical cues here that, again, it's not something I normally do. It's not something that I rely on quite so much. And yet it tells the story in a way that I hadn't expected, uh, making it larger than I thought it was going to be. So it, things like that work out sometimes when you find yourself thinking, well, what am I going to do? There's just not a whole, all the, the tools, all the tricks in my bag that I just don't have. Maybe there are other ones that you just got to listen. You got to listen, and you got to listen to the people. There's another thing that I, I noticed was that I was relying on the, the poetry of the human, the voice, the poetry of the spoken voice, listening to people say what they say in the way that they say it. Some of them very polished, some of them not polished at all. And yet together... It tells a story in so many different textures that it makes you think, there's more to this than I thought there was going to be. And yet everybody was powerful. You know, nobody was lacking because they didn't have an education or that they weren't like a, uh, a lawyer or someone who's you know, accustomed to speaking in a courtroom. There was a way of expressing yourself that cuts to the heart of the matter. So everything works together so well together. It's a very... It's a it's an interesting sounding experience. I, I I urge everyone to just watch and listen to the conversation. It's an hour long program, and it's a conversation that I think will inspire a lot of people. Chris Hendrickson, award winning producer, director here at WVIA Public Media, speaking with us before tonight's premiere of WVIA's original documentary film, A Call to Care. A Call to Care is based on a program that is titled Court-Assisted Reentry Program, the Court-Assisted Reentry Program. And it will be premiered tonight at 8 on WVIA-TV. Encores of the film will air on Friday, tomorrow afternoon at 1. Sunday, this Sunday, October 17th at 12.30, the following Thursday, October 21st at 9 p.m., and then Friday, October 22nd at 2. A Call to Care will also be available to watch on demand at wvia.org and on the PBS and WVIA apps after the broadcast premiere. For more information, online, wvia.org. That's the original documentary, A Call to Care, produced by Chris Hendrickson, our guest today on Artsy, premiering tonight at 8 on WVIA-TV with encores Friday, Sunday, the following Thursday and Friday, and also available to watch on demand at WVIA.org. That's the place to go for more information. It's WVIA.org.